I've been listening to that song. I learned it last year at a conference with, that the elders went, went to. And I hadn't really heard it much. And then it's been on the radio recently. And I've just really been blessed by it. And I was glad to hear you that you guys were going to be doing it. And um, thank you. And thank you, Joy. And Eric, wherever you are, if you're still out there greeting, within the sound of my voice. We have uh, started our new year off on a theme. And the theme for our new year is daring to live a God-directed life. Living a God-directed life requires choice. We've got to make a choice to live a God-directed life because the whole world lives a different kind of life. And the whole planet is on a different page and a different plan. We are asked to live a God-directed life. Now, when I say that, it always seems like a burden. But can I remind you that on this path is the path of abundance. On this path is the path of blessing. On this path is the, is the heavens themselves. That there is no other path from, from which you, you, you have these same things. That the other paths are all leading to pain and sorrow and destruction. And it's not that there won't be crisis. It's not that there isn't sorrow. It's not that there, there, isn't, there aren't issues on this trip, on this path along with Jesus. There are. And you, if you've been 20 minutes in the Christian life, you already know that. You already know that there are difficult things. There will be crises in the life of every believer. But the reality of that life is that you don't go through those crises by yourself. God walks beside you. And hopefully you belong to a fellowship where people will walk beside you as well. The reality of this world we live in is that it is coming to an end. And a God-directed life sees it all the way past its end. So we're talking about living a God-directed life. And we've chosen to start in the book of Daniel. And I chose Daniel to start out this year for a couple of reasons. Some of you folks just really love it when I talk about Daniel, which is okay. It's a good book. It's a good book. But we're trying to take it from a different angle this time. Usually when we talk about Daniel or Revelation, we just take the prophecies. We hit the big prophecies and we skip the interactions of the person, of the, e, of the individual in the, in the book. So we're going to spend more time focusing on Daniel. We're going to do Daniel chapter 2 this week. And it's not going to be your typical presentation on Daniel chapter 2. Because what we do, what we see here is a life, a young man's life, <clears throat> when he is in deep crisis. Think about what happened to him. Daniel was in a city that was under siege by a Babylonian king. Just stop and think about that for a sec. Do you know what a siege is? It is, a, it is an army camped around your city that is only being kept out by the density of the walls and the gates. And they're just waiting for you to run out of water or run out of food. So imagine you're inside the wall, and outside the wall is an army you cannot overcome. You have no way of escape, and they're just waiting. They're waiting for the food supply to get thinner and thinner and thinner. And when you've, when you've run out of the good stuff and you've gone on to the bad stuff, and you're, now you're eating the old stuff and you're starting to look at the moldy stuff, that's about the time you start thinking about when Daniel and the, Isra and the Israelite people, the, the people within Jerusalem, gave up. Daniel went through a siege. 
probably somewhere in his middle teens. So look for your nearest 15-year-old. They're probably all gone down in Oakland serving today. I'm looking for one. I think I see one, but he's looking down, so I don't want to pick him. It's a, it's an international symbol. You know, they're looking. If they call your name and you look down, they, you don't want to be called up. He's a young man, and he goes through a siege. Next, he's he gets he gets picked for the team nobody wants to be picked for. He gets picked to be hauled away from his home and his family, his mom and his dad, into exile. Yay, Daniel, you made the A-team. He got hauled off across the desert to a foreign land and put in the service of the king. His particular service was special. He was going to be serving the king in the castle or in the, in the, uh, in the household. And so just so that there's never a question about the lineage of the king, Daniel underwent surgery. And Daniel lost his male body parts. Note that the man who's in charge of Daniel is a man who's the chief of the eunuchs. Therefore, I shall not explain any further. If you have a question, ask your mom and dad. So he's been through a siege. He's been taken into exile. He's been made a eunuch. Then he goes through the crisis of the food, the question about what he's going to, whether he's going to eat what the king wants him to eat, and he chooses not to. He purposes in his heart. And I want to just start with that word. We talked about it last week. Last week. That's a choice statement, right? That's him saying, I'm making a different choice here. I've decided to live a God-directed life because I believe this is what God wants me to do here in the face of this king. And we talked about the significance of that choice. Simple thing, not a big thing. And how small choices often lead in big directions. Daniel chooses something different. So Daniel finishes his, years, his three years of college. And we find him in Daniel chapter 2. And a couple of things have happened to him. He's been exalted. He's been lifted up. He's been given all, uh, sort of a, a high position. And in that high position, he's going to come into crisis number 2. By way of a little bit of review, I just wanted you to see this map. You see the, the scale at the bottom? where it says 400 miles. The reason I wanted to put this up here was simply that scale. Because we think of these places as really far apart. It's a long way from there to there. It's really not. You could stretch, oh, somewhere in Northern California, above San Francisco a little ways, maybe Santa Rosa or someplace to L.A. from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's about 400 miles. From Jerusalem up to Assyria is a little further. Now, they didn't go directly across the desert, although we do know that Nebuchadnezzar marched directly across the desert to Babylon when his father died so that no one else would take the throne. And look at the distance to central Egypt. They're close to one another. That's why all this interaction, all this constant conflict back and forth between the Babylonians, the Mesopotamians, the Assyrians, the Persians, and the Israelites. Always the neighbors. Oh, that could be in your neighborhood. You could be saying that right now about the people living next to you. It's always the neighbors. They live in a rough neighborhood, and lots of rough things happen to them in that neighborhood. But they live in a very important neighborhood, because that little green line that makes that sort of... It's called the Fertile Crescent, but I've never really thought it looks like a crescent. It's a little bit odd-shaped for a crescent. But that little C-shape there that's kind of laying, laying on its face, 
That is where everybody in the world at that time is crossing through as they are going back and forth to to do trade, (laughs) to do military campaigns. They're all passing through Israel as that is happening. Passing through because it's the only place with water in that region to go from Babylon to Egypt. Got it? Does a little orientation make sense to you? Israel's caught in the middle of all that. Daniel's caught in the middle of a crisis in all of that. And we find ourselves in Daniel chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, so Nebuchadnezzar came to the throne in 605. That was his ascension year. He then had a couple more years of reign after that. So count down, down the, those couple of years. So 605 goes by, 604, 603. So 603, 602, somewhere in there, Daniel graduates from Babylonian college. Babylonian uh, advanced college and educational school. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. And the king gave the command to call the magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. Ever had a bad dream? When I was a little kid, we lived in a place down in the Bay Area called Niles Canyon. Nobody seems to know where it is. It's on Highway 84 between Highway 680 and, and Niles. It's kind of where it is. Niles Canyon has a creek running down through it. It's called Alameda Creek. There's a dam on Alameda Creek where I used to swim when I was a little kid. If you ever happen to go by, it's not very deep. As we, were, as we would go and play at this place, there was, a, there was this strange thing that went across a cable on the top. They would inspect the dam on this cable, pull themselves along and look down at it. I, I never understood it as a child. It was not that deep water. You could just walk down there and look at it. But I used to have dreams about this place. Nightmares, really. I would be asleep, and somehow this little cable, which I had seen for years and years and years, which stopped on the other side, it just hit a a, a little triangle that was holding it up. Somehow a house grew on this cable. And inside that house was this horribly evil old woman. And she would come for me night after night after night after night. It was terrifying. I didn't want to go to sleep because I knew she was going to be there. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that's so disturbing, he calls everybody. Note the list. He calls everybody who might have a possibility of telling him something about it. He calls the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. You've got magicians, sleight of hand, astrologers, they're supposed to know about the sky. Sorcerers, they're supposed to be able to control all kinds of demonic things. And the Chaldeans, they're just like historians and law keepers and people like that. He calls the whole group. Somebody has to be able to tell me what's in this dream. Now, we put this picture of of this dream up, and we have this image that is just a statue. You know what I think happened? I think when he saw the image, his face was on it. I think the head of gold was truly his face. Why else would it freak him out so much? Because the end of this dream isn't so happy for the statue, right? It gets blown away. It gets torn up. I think he saw himself in this dream and thought, oh, no, they're coming to get me. That old lady in the house, she was coming for him. And it was freaking him out. So he called everybody to come. So the initial crisis here, middle of the night, a king wakes up. And this is a very powerful man. This is a guy with a great deal of authority, a great deal of power. When he needs you in the middle of night, you come. Now what's interesting about this is Daniel has been exalted above all the new trainees. But the trainees apparently don't get to come. They only bring the experienced guys. Probably all the people who worked for his dad. These are probably all the wise men from his dad's people, from his, sort of his father's reign. 
And it doesn't appear that he trusts these guys. The Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now I want to stop there. I want you to look at this, this little phrase, in Aramaic. <coughs> in the English translation, they just translate that and they say, this, okay, they began to speak to the king in Aramaic. Well, we're not sure. Aramaic was certainly the language of trade at the time. Aramaic was certainly the language of communication across all of the empire. But we're not certain that they, were, that they would speak Aramaic at, at court because they don't write it. If you look at most of the court documents, they're not written in Aramaic. There are some, but not all of them. But what is interesting right here is from that point till the end of chapter 7, the book's written in Aramaic. So it may simply be, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king, parentheses, in Aramaic, everything else will be written kind of a thing. It's kind of a statement that this rest of this is going to be in Aramaic. Because from there to the end of chapter 7, it's all Aramaic. So you've probably heard this before. The Bible is written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Well, this is the Aramaic portion. The Aramaic portions are all related to the Babylonian exile, and this is a key piece in it. So it's not a big deal, just something I wanted to point out to you as we were going by. Chaldean spoke to the king. In Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. So what do they want? They want a reasonable answer here. Tell us what the dream said, and we'll tell you what the dream means. Now, what you have to understand is they actually had books for this. We've discovered books that have dream interpretation in them. So you go and you tell them the dream. Oh, in the dream there was a horse. Well, let me look at my book. Okay, horse. A horse means uh, speed, okay? Okay, something's going to happen fast. And then this, this horse was green. Okay, green, green, green horses. Green, well, green means popularity, horses. So you're going to get popular fast, king. And that's all it would. They would just go through the book, and they would pick out all the things that related to the dream and explain the dream. There literally are, we're, are still ex- existing books for interpreting dreams according to these folks, okay? So it was the normal process. You tell me the dream, I'll look in the book, and it'll tell you what it means. It's like your dream, basic dream encyclopedia. So they, they go to the king and ask for a simple request. Verse 5, the king answered, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and, the, and its interpretation, and I like this line, it always makes me laugh, although it probably did not make them laugh. You shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made into ash heaps. Who says that? You, you've got to be some sort of, I don't know, Middle Eastern potentate to be able to say something like that. You know, when one of your worst customers comes into your business, don't you want to just be, be able to say to them, if you're nasty to me a day, today, you'll be cut into pieces and your houses will be made into ash heaps. Yeah, you would, see? See? They're just, but... <laughs> every time I read it, I think... This is a little extreme. <laughs> you know, here's the king. Okay, you had a bad dream. Sorry. Suck your thumb, you big baby. What's wrong with you? You call in all your friends and all your people and you tell them, if you don't tell me what the dream is and what it means, I'm cutting you into little pieces and I'm burning your houses down. Because I can. You know? I, I've wondered about the extremeness, extreme nature of this. I've wondered if he doesn't actually trust his father's advisors. If this isn't about him not trusting these guys, that when there was a change from one to the other, if he was kind of wondering about whether these guys were actually loyal or not. And so he's kind of laying, the, laying down the law saying, look, I don't believe you guys are real. I believe you're a bunch of phonies. Therefore, 
prove that you aren't. Tell me the dream and its interpretation. Because he alone knows the dream. If these guys are as powerful as they say they are, and in Babylon these guys have a lot of authority. If they're as powerful as they say they are, they should be able to do this. It's one of those things that I always think when I go by like the palm reader guys. I have two things I think about. I, I always say, Lord, if they have a real connection, would you just mess that completely up for them? And I would invite you all to pray that for, with me as we go by these people. Because I think if we just disturb their peace, they might say, something's disturbing my peace. And think about it. Second thing I always wonder is, why don't they win the lottery every week? If you're really that good, if you can tell the future, pick the lottery numbers. Seems a reasonable thing to me. If you can tell me what my great aunt is thinking right now and she's been dead for how long, why can't you tell me what the lottery's about? Maybe they only get the lottery numbers if the dead person has them. So the king is upset, and the king says, I'm going to kill you guys and turn your houses into ashes. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can tell the king this matter. Therefore, no king has ever asked such a thing. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. There is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now stop for a sec. Who do these guys claim they have a contact with? The gods. And now they're saying, we don't have that kind of contact with the gods. They don't just answer when we call. So who's supposed to be advising the king? For this reason, the king was angry. Because he was crying, he was upset, didn't like people to see him crying. He was angry, very furious, and gave the command to destroy, look at the last word in that sentence, all the wise men of Babylon. Guess who is the freshly minted wise man? Hanging in his closet is his, his robe and his mortarboard from graduation. It's barely gathered any dust. It's barely been there. And now he's, he's got a death squad coming for him. What did he do? He didn't even show up for this meeting. He wasn't even invited to this meeting. He doesn't even know about this meeting. And yet, Arioch, the king's, head of the king's guard, is going to show up at his house. The decree, went, the, decree went out, the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So some of these wise men had already been killed cut into little pieces and their houses made into ash heaps. Just think about what that looks like. Your neighborhood. They go to your neighbor's house. They chop him up in little pieces and they burn his house down. Why? Because he's a wise man. Do you think that would scare you a little? Because we read these stories and just, oh yeah, it happens every day. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen to anyone. It doesn't happen every day anywhere. And as they're working their way through the wise men, they come to Daniel and they are ready to kill him. They began killing the wise men. They sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Daniel is now maybe, if he was 17 when he came, he's maybe 20. Maybe he's made 20 years old. Now, been through a siege, been chosen, lucky Daniel, to be in exile, been chosen to serve the king in the palace so he gets to be a eunuch, has this struggle with the food, this conflict with, his, with his, what he believes and what the king's wanting to feed him, and now they're coming to kill him. The death squad has shown up. How's life going for Daniel? Would you trade places with him? 
You see, we read about these guys and we think, what a great life. How cool was that? He's, he's talking to God. He's in this very connected relationship with God. I'd love to do that. Would you really love to do that? See, because a lot of this stuff seems to go along with this. Isaiah walks around naked for three years. Jeremiah lays on his, his side eating food cooked over cow dung. So uh, you look at what the prophets had to do. One of them has to marry a prostitute. These things are the things that these very connected people do. I sometimes wonder if it's because they're really, really connected and God says, all right, you guys, this is going to be hard. I know, but you're going to be a demo of how things work. Sorry. There's going to be a really cool place for you in heaven. Promise. I don't know. With counsel and wisdom. Stop for a second look at those words. With counsel and wisdom, Daniel answers Arioch. What are your emotions when the death squad, death squad shows up at your house? Fear. Anybody panicked? Anybody want to just run screaming into the night? Anybody looking for a place to hide? Anybody getting angry? Anybody wanting to fight? The normal human emotions in this situation, the death squad shows up at your house. You're trying desperately to get out of this, right? You're trying to find some way out of it. Daniel keeps his cool. Now, here's what I want to say. I called this sermon Still Following. Now, I have a confession to make. I had, uh, I had a meeting with the pastor of, of the church that meets here on Sunday. And we were talking. I, I was telling him, what, he asked me what I was preaching about. I told him. He, I asked him what he was preaching about. He told me. It's his regular, regular preacher conversation. I know other people don't do this, but we do. And, and he said, I preached this sermon last week. And he's kind of really jazzed about the sermon he preached the previous week. He said, he said, I called it still following. And I said, he said, I, I used kind of a play on words. Being still following and still following. So I completely stole this title. <laughs> I told him I was going to. Because it sums up exactly what I wanted to say about Daniel. Because... This is a guy keeping a very cool head in a very dangerous situation. Why? Why is he able to keep such a cool head? Because he knows the heart of God and he trusts God implicitly. And so he's just calm. Peace that passes understanding. In other words, peace that makes no sense. No reason for him to be peaceful. No no reason for him to be so cool-headed. But here he is and he's maintaining his cool Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel quietly, peacefully with wisdom speaks to Arioch and he says to the captain of of the guard who had gone out. Now, replace wise men with Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach and Abednego. (laughs) Just replace that with those little three words. The captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He speaks wisely and calmly to him. And he says, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time. That he might tell the king the interpretation of the dream. So here's Daniel. He goes, here comes the guy with the sword. There's blood dripping off it from the guy down the street. The other guy with the torch to burn the house down is standing next to him. And he's looking at Daniel, and Daniel goes, okay, wait, 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 Arioch, buddy, 
what's the hurry? Why are we killing all the wise men in Babylon? What's this all about? Because he wasn't at the meeting. He doesn't know why. Why are we doing this? Smile on his face, calm demeanor, not trying to run away. Because if he had run away, if they just got up and started running, what happens? Same thing that happens when you run away from the pit bull. He chases you, right? He's faster than you. They would have just chased them down. Calmly says, because he has this faith in God that's kind of uncanny. He's been living a God-directed life. Now, not very long. He's only 20 years old or so. He's been living a God-directed life, and he just trusts God. Think about that. Think about your situation. Think about the times when you're in crisis. Are you cool and calm? Because you're just like, yeah, I know God's got this. We had this conversation a lot when we're talking about Revelation. So Revelation has lots of scary stuff in it, right? And the worst, most scary thing in Revelation is they kill good people, right? What is the next thing that happens to a person who dies who is in love with Jesus? They see Jesus. So is that horrible. Nobody wants to die. I mean, I'm not lining up to get that done. But the next thing is Jesus. And so there's a, there's a calmness about people who face death, who know what their future is. There's, there's a quietness of spirit. When you go to the hospital with somebody who knows for certain that their eternity is securely in the hands of Jesus, and you sit beside their bed and they're facing the last heartbeat, they're facing the last breath, there's a certain level of calm in them that is brought on because of their relationship with Jesus. Daniel is looking at the guy who's holding his life in his hand, and he's calm as he deals with it. He's calm as he deals with him. Now, I want you to note this this little bit about provision. There's a subtle picture of provision here. The king accused the other wise men of Babylon of wanting time. What does Daniel ask for? Time. There's a subtle bit of provision. I don't know whether he just likes Daniel a little better, he trusts Daniel a little more, he knows Daniel can't be fooling around with him, playing tricks on him, he never worked for his father. I don't know what it is, but he's willing to give him a little time. So just that bit, that subtle bit of provision. It's interesting how that works for faith. When you're hanging on the thread like that, and the sword is there right at your neck, isn't it interesting how often there's just a subtle thing God will give you to kind of encourage you to get you through? You know what I mean? Some of you have been there. Some of you have experienced it. There's just very often when you hit those moments, there's just a subtle piece, something God lays out in front of you, and just kind of encourage you. Keep trying. Keep going. Keep moving forward. This is what still following looks like. Then Daniel went to his house. I've shared this with you before. If you remember, great. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hebrew names, Babylonian names, his companions, that they might seek... Mercies from God of heaven, from, from the God of heaven concerning the secret. So what are they going to do? What, is, what are you going to do when you're seeking the mercies of God? What are you going to do? You're going to pray. So they're going to pray. So he says, he goes and tells them what the issue is so that they might pray. They seek the mercy of God concerning this thing. Now, I want you to note, when the guy who's facing death is facing death, he prays. 
We talked about this with Hezekiah. When Hezekiah is facing Sennacherib surrounding the city of Jerusalem and he doesn't know what to do, he goes to the house of God to seek the word of God. He goes and he prays and he asks for God's help. This is what it means to be that, that still, quiet, peaceful relationship with God that brings peace in times when you shouldn't have peace. That brings peace in times when you're stressed out. It brings peace in a crazy world like the one we live in. Because you just know you can trust God. You can rest in God. And so he goes... Tells his friends and he prays. Now, this is where it gets to me really cool. So that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men. Lord, we don't want to die with everybody else. I, I don't know if you're trying to purge Babylon of these people, but could you keep the, can you keep the rest of us? Please? Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a, what time? Night vision. You're facing death, imminent death. You have a prayer meeting, and then you go to bed. I have to confess to you, I wake up worrying about stuff in the middle of the night. I do. I woke up at 3.38 this morning, worrying about stuff. And I wasn't even worrying about my sermon. Normally I worry about my sermon. 3.38 this morning, I'm worrying about stuff. Thinking about, actually, I had three names on my mind, people I was praying for, that came to my mind, came to my heart, and God's just speaking to me about this thing. So, I worry in the middle of the night for no apparent reason. I'm warmly tucked into my bed, and there I am, stressed out and worried. This guy, death is at the door. He has a prayer meeting with his buddies, and he goes to bed. And he has a night vision, which is a dream. You have to be asleep to get a night vision. Daniel went to sleep. I don't know if that impresses you at all, but it impresses the heck out of me. That's just such a cool thing to me. Here's this, here's this man who is facing the worst things any of us think about. Start mounting up your list of things you might worry about. Somebody showing up at your doorstep, intent on killing you, is pretty high on the worry list if it's possible. The only reason you don't worry about it is because you don't think it could happen to you. It is happening to him. And he's just calm about it. This is what it means to be still and know that I am God. This is what that looks like. So now you understand? That's what it looks like. How are you doing? Are you guys like me up at 3 o'clock in the morning worrying about stuff? Some of you sleep like babies. I envy you. I used to do that. Someone told me that you know you're a pastor when you're up all night worrying about stuff in your church or praying for people in your church. Okay, I know. Can I stop? If you and I haven't discovered that, what can we do to get there? Isn't that the next question? How do I get from where I am to where he was? How do I start having that kind of a relationship? I think it's simply choosing to walk day by day, choosing to walk again today, choosing to walk again today, mounting up a list of the things where he has been answering and touching and blessing us. Starting to say, yep, God is taking care of that. Yes, God is taking care of me through this. So this is Daniel's response. He wakes up in the morning. He knows what the thing is. He wakes up, tells his friends, guess what? I had the dream of the king last night. I know what his dream is. We can go, we can go talk to him. I got this. Thanks for your prayers. We're good to go. 
Daniel, blessed the God of heaven. Blessed be the name of, the God, uh, name of God forever and ever. Now stop. What's happened to him in the last three years? Oh, I remember. He, he sat through a siege where they ran out of food and had to surrender. He was picked to be an exile. Of all the people in Israel, he got picked. He was picked to be a eunuch. Of all the people that could have been picked, he got picked. He has been taken to the king's palace, forced to eat the king's food, and then said, no, I don't want to do it. And so he went through that whole deal. Now he's standing before a guy with a knife or a sword or something in the middle of the night. That's his life for the last several years. And this is his prayer. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. He's living far away from home, mom and dad and everything he knows. He's gone through a tremendous amount of stuff in his, this short time. Life was good. He was cruising. He was a junior in high school. His dad was about to buy him a new chariot when he turned 16. Everything was going good for him. And now he's in Babylon. And now all this terrible stuff is happening in his life. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom... And might are his. He changes the times and the season and he removes kings and raises up kings. Have he seen that last line? He'd seen the removal of a king in Jerusalem and he'd seen a new king being placed in. And what is he saying? He's saying, I don't understand your plan, God, but I understand God. I don't understand your plan, but I trust you. He's comfortable that God still got it when it's not going the way he thought it was going to go. I sat down and talked with four young pastors this week. It was great. It was, great. It was a great blessing to me. I, I, none, of them, none of them were, well, all of them were young enough to probably be my kids. As I, I sat there talking to them, I, I asked them how they ended up <clears throat> where they are. They kind of told me their stories. <clears throat> and one of the pastors um, one of the other guys said, you're so right, Brain, when he started telling the story. He said, he said I went, I, I, when I was graduating from college, I said, God, here are the three possibilities for me. And he gave him three specific possibilities. I, want, I can do this, or this, or this. That's it. That's what I'm going to do. And here's how gracious God is. God gave him one of those three. But it was part-time, and he wanted full-time. And he said, okay, God, that can't be it, because it's not full-time. Now, if I'm that kid's parent, I'm saying, take any job they give you. Because from here, it's McDonald's with your degree. He believed that God would do it. He believed that God would handle it. And so, a few weeks later, they came back to him and said, well, we're making this a full-time position. That's how gracious God is. Because we have no right to ask God to follow our plan. We have no right. Because we don't know what we're talking about. We do not know what we're talking about. We don't know what we see. We don't know what we're doing. We, we're looking right at the lives of other people, have no idea what's going on, and God knows every bit of it. And yet we want to throw plans out in front of him and say, this is what we'd like you to do now. And he graciously takes those prayers and answers as he can for our blessing. Daniel is saying, this plan isn't going the way I thought my, my 16 to 20 year old would go. I, I, you know, I never saw myself here, God. But I believe you are God. And I believe I should follow. I trust that you still have a plan. 
I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers, for you have given me wisdom and might. (laughs) Does he have might? Not really. He's a slave in a foreign country and a guy just showed up his door with a sword ready to kill him. He has nothing. You could argue that he has wisdom, but he just has nothing else. Then Ariok quickly brought Daniel. Oh, he tells him, I got this. Then Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. Now, did Ariok find him or did Daniel find Ariok? Daniel find Ariok. Daniel's the one who told him he could do this, right? Who's taking the credit? Who's taking the credit? Does it bug you? Would it bug you if you were Daniel? Would it bug you if you were you? Maybe it wouldn't bug you if you were Daniel. Would it bug Daniel if he were you? Here's this guy coming up and he's taking the credit, but Daniel doesn't argue that. Daniel doesn't, fuss, doesn't go after that. I think this is Satan's bait. Trying to get Daniel off topic, off topic. Trying to take Daniel away from what he should be doing. Daniel, Daniel's looking at this thing and da- he's listening to Ariok and Ariok goes, Look what I did, Nebuchadnezzar. I found this guy who's going to tell you, this, tell you what happened in your dream. And Daniel's like, yeah, whatever. And he just goes on. He doesn't need the credit. He doesn't need this attention to be focused on him. He doesn't want the credit, in fact. Daniel then said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men and the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, cannot declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven. But there is a God in heaven. Do you know what the first commandment is? You should have no other gods before me. Why? There are no other gods. It's, it's the biggest duh commandment of all the commandments. It's the don't have any other gods. Because there aren't any other gods. Duh. Don't have any idols because they're rocks. Duh. Right? This is the, this is the way the commandments should be read. Be read. You, you, know, this is, you should read the commandments and end each one with duh. Honor your father and your mother so that things will go well with you in the land. Duh. Don't steal from people. Duh. Don't lie to people. Duh. Right? Shouldn't they all end in duh? The biggest one's the first one. There are no other gods, so don't try to have other gods. Solid foundation for your thinking, right? Get started on the right track. There just aren't any other gods, but there is a God in heaven. All these other things, the rocks and stones and things you guys have been praying to, cool, they are great statues, they're awesome, your, your, your carving masters have done a great job, your, your, your goldsmiths have done an amazing job, they're beautiful statues, but that's all they are. They're not talking, but there is a God in heaven. Your wallet is not in control of your life. Your wallet is not in control of your eternity. But we treat it like a God sometimes. We look at that thing like it's the answer to all of our stuff. I know I bring this up a lot because that is the first century God. Or the first world God, I should say. That is our God. We so lean on our wallets for provision. But there is no provision there. In the end of the day, there's just a few bucks and eventually even those can run out. Even Trump filed for bankruptcy. But there is a God in heaven. King, these guys can't tell you anything because they really have nothing to say. There's, they're not talking to anybody. There's nobody out there. They're speaking into the darkness. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in latter days. 
there's a God in heaven. Is Daniel taking credit? He's not, right? He's just saying there's a God in heaven. God's done this. God has done this. God has shown you this and he's shown it to me. As for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sake, who make known the interpretation of the king. So he says, this has not been given to me because I'm a really smart guy, but so that we don't die. That's what that says, right? That is, God just answered my prayer. My prayer was not, let me be bright. My prayer was, don't let me die. And he answered my prayer. I am not smarter than everybody else, but God answered my prayer because I don't want to die. And he said, okay. And so that you may know the thoughts of your heart. See, now think about this. We have read Daniel chapter 2 a hundred times, and we've missed Daniel completely. We want to jump to this, this statue that the king saw. We want to jump to the interpretation. And we miss the beauty of the relationship this man has with God. Here's a man facing death who's had a horrible last few years. You want to talk about a repeated succession of bad news at his doorstep. He's had it over and over and over again. Most of us have never had a succession of years like these ones. This guy is still faithful after all of that. Still quietly, peacefully following God. Still after God's heart. Still believing and trusting in God no matter what's falling on him today. No matter what kind of ugliness is in his life today. Here he is. He's standing before the king. And he's not even wanting to take credit. He says, there's a God in heaven. And by the way, he didn't tell me this because I'm all that smart. He just, I just prayed. I didn't want to die. And he just said, okay. Isn't that what that says? Do you have appreciation for Daniel? I, I just appreciate this guy. I appreciate how, how noble and honest all this is. This is what he saw. I know some of you will hear Daniel too. And this is... We've got to get to the statue. We've got to get to the statue. There it is. Woo-hoo. We made it. We're not staying here long, though, so don't get your hopes up. He then interprets the dream for the king. That's basically what the king saw. We don't know exactly. Nebuchadnezzar didn't leave us a picture. What we do know is that this is a fairly common look for the era. Sumerians, Babylonians, this look in the face, this, this beard and all that. I think most artists assume, like I assume, that it represented the king, and it probably was his face. That's why they put a royal face on it. Daniel explains that, the, that Babylon is that head of gold. He said, you saw this image. It was head of gold, chest and arms of silver, uh, belly and thighs of, of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. And he said, you are the head of gold. Babylon is it. You're the guy. And after you will come a kingdom that's not as cool as yours, but... It'll be a little inferior, but it'll come. Medo-Persians will take over after you. And they do. In fact, Daniel's still, on the, still serving the king when Cyrus the Persian is finally there, ruling in Babylon itself. The Medo-Persians will come. Oh, and then the Greeks are going to come after that. You remember him, Alexander the Great? He takes his father's armies and he crosses, the, crosses around the Mesopotamian world and up through Egypt and takes over the whole region. Alexander the Great and the Greeks then rule for hundreds of years. Then along come the Romans. Romans birthed in 500 B.C., but come to real authority and real power by about 200, 150. They start spreading through the Mesopotamian region by then. These empires grow bigger and grow stronger as, as the metals. If you look at the metals, they get less precious but stronger as they go, and that's how the empires go. They get more powerful and stronger as they go, and the Romans are certainly the most powerful. Rome exists as a leading authority in the world from 500 B.C. to 500 A.D. That's a thousand-year reign. It's a thousand years. Nobody has ever done that beside them. 
He said, after that last one, the, the bottom one, that represented by those feet that are partly iron and partly clay, it's going to be a dividing up of the empire. And that dividing up of the empire is going to turn into a bunch of little groups. They're going to try to stick together. They're going to intermarry. They're going to try everything they can to build one big unit, and they're never going to make it work. And it's Europe. So here's Daniel. Approximately, give him 602, 603 B.C. He predicts the empires that will go from there to 500 A.D., Pretty, pretty good move. Pretty good move. You know, the best of those people, I don't know if they do it anymore. I haven't paid, paid much attention to this sort of thing lately. They used to have people who would predict what was going to happen, you know, next year. Always this time of year, they'd talk to somebody and they would say, oh, yeah, well, you know, three Hollywood marriages are going to fail. Yeah, I could have predicted that. And four other Hollywood people are going to get remarried. Oh, yeah, that happens a lot. You know, and, and, and even at that, they were only like 40% successful, the best of them, at guessing. This guy has just covered the empires that rule the, the primary region of, 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 uh, of culture from 602, 603 down through Rome without question. The dividing up of Rome, what is left over in the world of the Roman Empire, divided up into a whole bunch of little groups that tried for centuries to try to stick together. He's been pretty good. So with a little bit of math, something close to 2,620 years. Why should you follow God? So I want to talk to you today if you have questions about Scripture. If you're here and you're kind of going, ah, you know, the whole Bible thing, I don't know. I don't know, it's just, you know, I had this professor once, he said it was just a book, you know, it's got a lot of cool literature, I like reading it in King James, the these and the thous, it's like reading Shakespeare, but, you know, I don't know, can I just tell you one of the anchors for faith in scripture is prophecy, and one of the anchor prophecies is right there, 2,600 years and running, People have tried to get empires to run the world. People have tried to unite Rome. People have tried to succeed in controlling massive amounts of the same region. Nobody's been able to make it work. The Bible said it wouldn't. The Bible wasn't determining that it wouldn't. It was just telling you that it wouldn't. So if you're questioning the strength of Scripture, you can go to several of these major prophecies. We'll touch on them as we go by through here. So we look at the life of Daniel. They are, an, they are a, an anchor place for your faith. I cannot predict what's happening next week, and Daniel covers a couple of millenniums. Now you can say, oh yeah, they're broad sweeping terms and all that. In fact, I'll tell you, the people who are skeptical about the Bible itself and try to prove that it's not true, they have a big problem with Daniel. They try to make Daniel a second century prophet, and they've got all kinds of reasons and as we start going through the lists of things that they give, one of the ones they used to give was Nebuchadnezzar. He's not anywhere else in there. Daniel's made this guy up. Well, then they discovered Babylon. They started digging up the bricks and found that he'd stamped every fourth brick with his name on it. Check that one off the list. They said Daniel's version of Aramaic isn't, is clearly not the Aramaic of Babylon. It's the Aramaic of the second century. And then they found some tablets actually written in Babylon at the time and the Aramaic matches. They said... There's no way that this guy could have predicted all of this stuff. Well, that's great. You don't think he could, but that's not an argument. 
And you start going through the list of things that they're saying for why Daniel doesn't exist, and this keeps flying in the face of it. How do you predict the kingdoms that are come, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then say there's not going to be another empire after that? I mean, you might guess empire, there's going to be empire, then another empire, and then another empire. This just means there's a bunch of empires. That's what it means. But how are you going to get to that last one? How are you going to say that that last one, the last empire is going to be divided up. It's not going to be conquered. It's not going to be overrun. It's just going to be divided up. And he nails it. So if you've come here with questions about Scripture today, can you put this on the foundations to underpin those, the answers? Just this little piece. Just, you don't have to have all the answers today. Just put this block as an underpinning for one of those places that gives you faith. So what next? He says, and at the days of, this, of those kings, the days of those European divisions, in the days of these kings, God will, <coughs> the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. We live down in the toes of that image. We live down on the, the last part of that thing as far as we can tell. Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, and Rome are gone, long gone. We go to Rome, we visit the things that are there. Babylon's having its, its great monuments destroyed by ISIS even as we speak. The Medo-Persians and the Greeks, they left great things behind, but they're not there anymore. But here's Europe, and it's still here, and this division of the Roman Empire still exists. And the Bible says in the days of those kings at that time, then God will set up his own kingdom. That's what's going to happen next. When? I don't know. Would you like to still be following God when it happens? I'd like to be there. Last thing I'd like to say about this uh, portion of Daniel is, The king gets real excited when Daniel tells him this dream. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is a God of gods, Lord of kings, revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. From this king to Artaxerxes, six generations of kings have a special place in their heart for the Jews. And it starts right here. The influence of somebody who's following God. The influence of someone who's following and trusting in God spreads for generations. You want to to impact your kids? Leave them all the money you can leave them. That's awesome. But leave them a tradition of following God. Leave Leave them an example of following God. Leave them a demonstration of following God. I have a friend who's a pastor. He hasn't always been a pastor. In fact, he told me that he believes he's a pastor because God wanted to save his life. He came home from partying one night. He was in his teens. And he was, a, he was a, one of those preacher's kids who was out doing everything he shouldn't have been doing. It was really late at night, and he's sneaking into the house. Didn't turn on any lights. Tried not to make any noise. As he came through the door, closed it quietly behind him and snuck in, headed for his room at about 3, three 4 in the morning. He heard someone whispering. And he looked through the darkness over into the living room and he saw his dad. And there was his dad. And as he listened to the whispering, he heard his dad praying for him. Get busted by your kids or your grandkids or your nieces and nephews praying for them. Be heard doing that. 
He said, the next morning, he said, I'm sure my dad saw me go through, but he didn't say a word. But that changed the direction of his life. If you want to leave a legacy to your children, leave the kind of legacy that Daniel's building here. A legacy of a person who's quietly, continuously trusting in and following God. The dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. The only question left is, will I be one following or will I choose to go my own way? It is a choice to follow. I told you about a friend of my daughter's. Her name is Heather, who told my daughter this. No one ever drifts into greatness. It requires choice. If your spiritual life is going to be stronger at the end of this year than it was at the beginning, than it is right now, we will have to make choices about those things. We will have to face the gaps between what we say we believe and what we do. We'll have to face the gaps between our values and our morals and our actions. We'll have to face the gaps that God points out to us. That's the bottom line. I make the choice to go after him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's, it seems so hard. It seems so difficult to make the decisions to follow you day in and day out. For some reason, it just rubs against all of us. Our nature just keeps us from, from passionately following you every day. But I pray for courage to make decisions. Decisions that may seem a little crazy, but decisions that are led by you. And when difficult things hit, when crises and frustrations and problems come our way, take us by the hand. Walk us through them, I pray. In Jesus' name.